0: Helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
1: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, your host, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief. Where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Kristen Mikoff. Kristen is a business and brand strategist, author, and book coach. She earned her MSW from the University of Michigan and has more than 20 years of clinical experience, a nationally recognized expert on resiliency and gratitude. Her best-selling book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, was inspired by her own personal experience with widowhood, grief, and healing. A Korean-American adoptee, she was left on the streets of Korea as an infant. She came to the U.S. in 1974 and became a naturalized citizen. As a confidential advisor, she privately works with some of the most influential people in media and politics and has developed high-level strategic plans and partnerships. She graduated from Kalamazoo College with a BA in psychology. Welcome Kristen. Thank you, Cheryl, I'm honored to be here. I'm very happy to have you. And um as with many people I have on the show, you wrote the book, you say you wrote the book you said you needed. So um well can you can you share a little of what what led what happened in your life that led you to writing in the book writing the book and more particularly, why this book? How did it speak how did this particular way of talking about your widow? widowhood in general speak to you
2: well first of all my book was really written out of a need because in 2007 i was 33 and I lost my husband after a very brief battle with cancer adrenal cancer so it was less than 8 weeks from the time that he went in we didn't realize it was cancer to his funeral And at 33, I didn't know other widows who, of course, my age is not a typical age in which a woman or a man loses their spouse or their partner. And I really wanted to be able to connect with stories and understand that I was not alone. And I also know after the loss of a loved one, it's difficult to comprehend and understand a great deal of material. So The book is thematically connected in that sharing stories often helps us feel less alone. And yet they have standalone chapters, meaning, for example, if you want some guidance on financial planning or solo parenting or how to handle going back to work after loss, you can tune straight to that chapter and not have to worry about reading other chapters in order to understand one in particular So that's really the impetus for the book. And I went all over the world and interviewed as many women as I could and put their stories together. Of course, I have an editor and a publisher, but the stories are together in there, along with practical advice.
1: And that, you know, uh, that kind of stood out to me because, of course, I work with lots of of widows and widowers and the, the... for for the vast majority, the initial stages of grief are so um, wreak so much havoc with the mind. You know, um, doing a simple task is no longer simple. Uh, there's an occasional person who you know it actually runs at a fast pace at that moment, but mostly, wouldn't you say? Well, I'll ask you. Do you think most of the the women you interviewed had trouble with the practical right off the, at the start?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I personally can remember a time that I went shortly after the funeral to the grocery store and I stood in the aisle and I just started sobbing because I realized I was shopping for one, be making meals for one. And then I realized I needed to leave the store and I couldn't find my keys and my keys were in my coat. I mean, I was having a meltdown literally in a particular aisle and, you know, got to my car and realized my keys were in the car. I mean, you know, these things did not happen prior to my loss. And all of a sudden it felt like, you know, my mind was constantly short-circuiting.
1: And there's, of course, some some. Biological reason for that; it is sort of a protection, but in the world we live in, it's also incredibly, diff- incredibly difficult to manage. I'm thinking of of someone I've worked with who I could I could name the exact moment when the fog started clearing, and and she could do more than two things in a day, right? So, um, I th- I think I get the idea from the book that having a list of things you probably have to take care of can be like someone saying, do this now, do this now, do this now. Have people used it in that way?
2: Yes. There is actually a downloadable free list on my website that comes straight from my book that my publisher has, you know, graciously offered. And the reason that I did it in a list form is because it captures things in bite-sized chunks. And those are easy, at least for me, and I know other women have told me, it's uh, easier to digest bite-sized chunks than having super long tasks that involve multiple steps and can seem more complex and overwhelming.
1: And especially considering at a time when you're challenged in that way, when your brain is challenged that way, almost every widow is doing new things trying to navigate things they didn't do before because it's rare that both partners in a relationship do everything, right? <laughs> There's some compartmentalization. What was the hardest thing for you to pick up after your husband died? Were there things right. he did that Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead.
2: Um so you're right, like it's very rarely our is a relationship ever 50/50 in which tasks are easily divided and each one knows what the other's doing and i can remember for myself he my husband did all of the cooking and all of the meal prep and all the grocery shopping so that
1: goes back to my earlier example oh that my goodness like, that, was a, that was that yes. that was especially loaded
2: <laughs> yeah so i was actually like lost in the grocery store thinking How did he get us all together, and and what exactly you know would I be doing? And I also think because of the stress of losing someone, learning something new is difficult. So whether it's learning a new route for how you're going to navigate yourself, like literally and figuratively, how to get home, or if there's a car repair you're not used to doing that, or you are after a loss, you're often faced with medical bills and knowing how to do a medical appeal or asking questions, financial questions. These are all very important things, but can be very scary if you've never done it for the first time.
1: And every, what I recall is um, I had to make a lot of space that every single thing I did had a grief component for a long time, actually. Uh, you know, cleaning out a drawer or um, any any action brought both memory and loss with it. Um, maybe that's true of some people more than others, but I, I certainly recall that experience.
2: It is really bittersweet to have to go through somebody's drawer, or somebody's closet, cleaning out their desk, looking at even things that are everyday items because they can bring up a memory. And sometimes these things happen even years after the loss that you're going through a closet and you don't realize something's in a coat pocket of your loved ones Mm -hmm. that you put there. Mm -hmm. And it can bring, you know, tears at that moment and transport you instantly back to that time in which that person gave you that note or you took a pair of their gloves for them and put them in your coat pocket. So grief and loss are very sensitive and tender moments in which we really are called to not only hold space for others, but also for ourselves.
1: I'm thinking about, uh, I am, I'm remarried. I've been remarried for a long time and, uh, For many, many, many years. At first, I didn't want to change anything in the house. And uh, my lovely wife said, I just need a nightstand next to the bed. The rest can stay in storage, right? (laughs) Which was so kind. But then I, I did one little piece. I mean, it really was literally years because my principle on grief is don't rush it if you don't have to, you know, so i actually took time with each thing I would encounter. Now my house doesn't look at all like it looked, you know, we've remodeled almost everything and all of that. But there is something about having the space to acknowledge the grief that really helped me a lot. Um, But not everyone has that space and time. They have to move or, you know, other things demand um, changes.
2: Right. Many women and men are called back to work. And whether they're working from home, working remotely or physically at the job and or are caring for other loved ones as well, whether it's their children or their parents or something else, especially during the pandemic, it was very cumbersome and stressful. And there wasn't a lot of room mentally and physically to grieve because of the situations, you know, with the lockdown and people were experiencing their goodbyes in a much different way. They weren't able to gather. And I think that really impacted the way in which the trajectory of their own healing took place.
1: You know, it's kind of a paradox, too, because on the one hand, I feel as if uh, the, the open, at least media conversations about grief increased, but the capacity to do things you would usually do about grief decreased, <laughs> and so it was kind of a mishmash, huh?
2: It was, and it's really, I think, so... I used the word before, but it's very bittersweet because some people went above and beyond to help those who were grieving because they knew they were physically and emotionally isolated and reached out via Zoom or reached out in an email and a text, knowing that they needed extra support. And then others, as I said, you know, were not able to gather. And there's a lot of power in getting a hug and an embrace and not having that. I think, really impacted the way that people experienced the loss.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel we're going to be, you know, addressing that for a long time to come, uh, just the the impact of that many deaths in such a short period of time. Um, it's It's monumental, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. I was looking at a study, I believe, that was released widely, and it said I think it was one in five Americans knew someone who died during the pandemic. And for every person that was lost, at least nine people were in bereavement or experiencing some type of grief related to this. So there are people, for example, who went back to work. And their colleague is no longer there, not because they left for another job, but because they experienced a loss. And that's really something that as Americans, we often are not comfortable talking about the emotional impact that loss has in the workplace when the people that maybe be your best friends or your colleagues or even your boss is no longer there to provide that support and how How do you support one another emotionally in a workplace environment?
1: Yes, I've had several guests. Uh, The one who's coming to mind at the moment is Rachel Cadenas. She lost her husband at about the same age you did, actually, and wrote a book on grief in the workplace because grief in the workplace that that's not a thing that's addressed even in human resources departments or you know uh helping people navigate what to say what not to say how often to say it just all of that is kind of left up in the air often uh i've i've encountered some exceptions for instance this was the best story i ever heard uh a client long time ago whose wife had died uh Her workplace called and said, "Um, if you want to, you can come back. We won't expect you until you're ready to produce any work. But if you would like to come back and we'll just come by your desk and give you a hug now and then, um, you're welcome. And she did do that and it did help. That recognition that she was a griever and she couldn't produce. And then over time, she, you know, found her way back to productive labor. But um, the only way people usually get a break is if they take a leave or they, you know, and most people can't afford to do that, of course.
2: No, in fact, my ch- chapter seven of my book is called Widow in the Workplace, because I know going back to work, I felt a lot of pressure to go back. This is in 2007, late in the year. And as we know, what happened in 2008 with economics across the country there was concern about my job for example others around me actually did lose their jobs and there was a lot of pressure for me to go back and you know one of the things you can ask yourself is you know what type of work can I really realistically handle and I had to ask myself that should I be taking on extra assignments at this point mm-hmm. and one of the things I think that leaders whether whatever the level they're at, the founder, if they're the, um, CEO to acknowledge is really important to acknowledge the loss and ask what they can do for them and understand that they may be struggling mentally, especially with clarity.
1: I find that more typically happens right at the beginning, but then within a short period of time, uh, People start getting in trouble for not. Uh, I, I've I've actually heard of people be be fired in the period where they're not quite producing the way they used to, you know, a month or two in, and that's that's then an, another loss, right? So um, maybe not a great workplace in other ways. I don't know, but uh, that isn't uncommon.
2: No, it's not, unfortunately. And I think that we can really do some compassionate leadership training. I'm working with a professor at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business right now, Dr. Amy Young. I'm providing compassionate leadership for these exact times and situations.
1: I know a lot of people did leave their jobs during the pandemic, um, both just because they – it, it, it reordered priorities but also because people were in too much emotion, emotional distress to keep it up you know even if they didn't have a direct loss it's, it's getting to be really about, tough yeah it's about time for our first break um when we get back i i would like to um just talk more about obviously some of these chapters um, directly impacted you more than others. Um, for instance, you didn't have children at the time, but you include a chapter on on dealing with children. Um, so I, I wanna uh, get to some of the specifics that, that you contain in the book when we get back. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Kristen Meekhoff and her book, you can go to Kristen Meekhoff. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-M-E-E-K-H-O-F.com. Be back soon.
3: Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health. Or click the like button under the player today.
1: This is Good Grief host, Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a ten percent discount for the first month. <laughs>
0: Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at WeatheringGrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kristen Mikoff about her book, A Widow's Guide to Healing, which she wrote with James Wendell, a psychologist, after the death of her husband, hoping to give other widows a practical reference for coping with the first several years of widowhood. And I was referring before we went on the break, Kristen, to the um, the fact that you were very complete, um, both about the parts that directly in, impacted you and the parts that, that didn't, like... Um, taking care of kids and, you know, being a parent and now a single parent. And I was telling you during the break, that was one of the um, best parts for me, but also hardest parts for me. What was good about having kids at the time my wife died was that it kept me looking forward. But what was not so helpful is I I didn't deal very well with with a lot of noise, a lot of friction, and kids are made of noise and friction. So (laughs) I had a few bad moments, but I did have enough space during the day to kind of um, collect myself, I guess. Um, What did you notice in talking with the widows you interviewed about this new solo parenting they were experiencing?
2: So the reason that I decided to do a chapters chapter four the widow's guide to solo parenting is because in 1979 I lost my father to cancer I was two weeks shy of my fifth birthday and in the late 70s early 80s there was absolutely no resources for my mother who was a widow I was an only child and I know that in speaking with her, this was a really lonely time because she didn't have other women to ask. And the only other solo parents that she knew were women, for example, who either were not living together with the, the child or ch- children's father, excuse me, or were divorced. And so my mother's experience as a widowed parent was extremely isolating and difficult for her to navigate. I can remember being in kindergarten and not knowing another child who had a parent who had died. And mm. I think that, you know, my mom was ill equipped and this isn't blaming her in any way because you can't really prepare in that, in that manner, but was really ill equipped to handle some of these social and educational situations when for another example, when I was asked to draw a picture of my family, and I didn't know if I should include my father or not, because he was, I felt, so part of my family, and yet, you know, not part of our family in, in the physical sense. And kids would ask me, you know, where's your dad? Because they, you know, they came from families in which their father was still present, or they saw mm, him. Yes. You know, if it wasn't on a daily basis, they would they would see him, you know, much more than clearly i would have had these types of experiences and i was embarrassed and for a while i just said he was away on a business trip because i had actually heard that phrase business trip from one of my uncles and so it was very awkward and uncomfortable and i just really wrote this chapter it's really the heart and soul i think of the book in many ways because it came from a place of great loneliness for myself growing up with a mom who's a, a young widow. And this is really to help women and men navigate this difficult trajectory with their children. It gives points on what to say and what not to say, how to be clear with your children, you know, to be age appropriate, how to address their fears. I had a lot of fear that something was going to happen to my mother and mm-hmm. really you know, understanding that this is something that will forever impact their children, but it doesn't mean that it's going to damage them in such a way that they're unable to be healthy and to give back.
1: I I affirm that my kids are fine, (laughs) but I think they were fine sooner because there was open talking. Uh, I'm thinking of when I met my now wife, and the first time she came to dinner and she was at one end of the table and my younger daughter was at the other end of the table. She was about three at the time. She looked her dead in the eye and said, are you going to die too? And Uh, you know, we all kind of took a breath and I'm like, how she answers this is gonna tell me a lot about her, (laughs) right? Because that's a big question to come out of a little mouth and she said, I'll be here for as long as you need me. So I thought that was a pretty good answer. But oh, yeah. those the, those natural questions that we're not used to being um, transparent about. And there are all these euphemistic ways. I don't know if this happened in your childhood, but I've talked to so many clients who lost parents young who were were could remember things said to them that were very confusing, like they're in a better place or, you know, (laughs) all kinds of um, euphemisms for the thing instead of just, you know, they died and this is what death is and all of that. Do you think you understood at that age that, for instance, death was permanent and, um, You know, just what did you understand at that age? Do you recall?
2: I do. It's interesting that it's so poignantly seared really in my mind. I was with my paternal grandparents the night that he died. My mother was in the hospital room. And I had not had any experiences with death prior to my father dying. You know, I didn't have, you know, the experience of losing anyone else close to me in any way, not even my pets. And so while it was difficult for me to understand because, you know, time to children is different, I somehow did grasp the fact that my father was not coming back, that this was it. And I think it's really important to understand that children really do know that grief is serious. And even if they may have a response that does not match it, like they laugh because perhaps they're nervous or something, or they feel unease when another parent or adult isn't talking about loss, that, that, it's, that it's not only serious, but it's life-changing. And you can't mm-hmm. replace the parent. Uh, lots of people think, oh, well, I'm just going to you know have a new partner or spouse or remarry. And that's what my mother did. And I've talked to her about that. And she was really lonely at the time that she remarried. And many women and men do feel that their child needs another parent. And I would just caution that to make it very clear that you can't replace a person. You can replace a role. You know, the teacher is no longer there. say a substitute teacher for the week or the day or whatever. But you cannot replace that person
1: in their life. I I so agree with you in that in that area that uh, and not to mention these two people in my life are really completely different people. My first wife and second wife, very different personalities. You know, different ways of interacting. There's there's it's a it's a those are completely new relationships, Um, and there's still that reference to the previous right um that's i, I don't believe relationships end personally at, they at least go on within us so um i i affirm your idea that it's pointless to try to replace someone and it's it can be damaging as well i've talked to lots of people who lost parents as children who were actually harmed by the attempt to erase the first person and add a new one?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, it's natural because as a parent, they, you know, they see a gap and a longing to fill that void for their child. And so I think it's very natural to try to place that void with a person, but to a child it can be very confusing and it can send them wrong message. So the intent can be heartfelt and meaningful and out of love, but I would just, you know, as you know, long term, the way the child interprets that can be very confusing and can really create, you know, some some conflict and some questions later on. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which we can still keep memories alive, especially on the holidays, is to help children remember something positive about the parent, no matter what age their child is, because children often have a very positive image of their parent, regardless of the situation in which the death happened.
1: You know, I'm interested uh, in general and and specific to our time together in uh, the the story we tell about our lives from a grief perspective, and you have a particularly um, lifelong relationship to grief. Uh, I have an adopted child and I know there's loss in that, right? Um, and then losing your father and then losing your husband very young. Do you think, how does it impact? We can't know the answer to this. I'm just theorizing with you. How How do you think it impacts the next grief to have experienced one previously?
2: I think With myself, personally, I know to leave nothing unsaid. And that doesn't mean that you're aggressive with somebody if you have a disagreement or you're angry and you're just going to get it all out just so that you can say, I've left nothing unsaid. But what it does is that you understand that the way in which you live is much differently because you do have, as I said, a very bittersweet, way of seeing the world. And the lens through which you see for myself personally is one of compassion for people who have experienced loss and for people Mm -hmm. who are anticipating a loss.
1: It's interesting that before your husband died, you went into social work because that's a psychological profession, right? (laughs) And I think that is that that's so favored by whatever has happened in our lives that 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 you know i i can i know exactly why i was drawn to that right um way before my wife died for other other uh struggles and losses so i agree with that i and i do think uh something my kids say is that they they know to go ahead and do what's important to them—that wow. they're not—they're really not guaranteed, you know. They're really not guaranteed life. So if something matters to them, go for it. And they both do that quite um, vehemently. I'll, I'll say it like oh. that, you know. They're—they're they're, they're, they're not stopped by fear. Uh wow. they they fear losing people but they don't fear living life. They fear not living life.
2: Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I you know, and I think some children depending on the circumstance in which the the loss happened do have some fears and anxiety because it's, you know, I explained to other parents that loss death are very much adult issues and you're asking your child at whatever age they are to manage an adult issue with a child's experience and the lens through which they see the world is much different than an adult will see the world and so it's can create some very anxious moments for a child who's struggling with feeling safe and secure in the world around them.
1: They now know something viscerally that most people don't know viscerally for a very long time. Um, that's, that's what I would say, you know, uh, experience is the most dramatic teacher in those ways and how you cope with living in a world where that happens is a big deal, huh?
2: It, it is. And I think especially in the age of social media in which children tend to compare themselves with other people and they see that other children have something that they don't have, whether they've lost a sibling or a teacher or a parent, it's still difficult to grasp how this happened and how to move forward.
1: The other thing I would I've noticed a lot in the work in the work that I do when when the people I'm working with have kids is that they actually lose the other, the living parent uh, in terms of the way they used to be? You know, that person has to uh, reincarnate themselves into a new kind of parent, where they do all the all the jobs, and that can be a loss sometimes of of um, how you saw that person in the first place. They can't be that person anymore.
2: Oh, absolutely. Did you notice I know, that with your mom? Yes, I know it was firsthand. I mean, I can say definitively that my mother ceased to be the person that she was the night my father died. And it wasn't a conscious decision like, oh, I'm just going to you know turn over a new leaf and, and proceed forward. But that's the power of a loss. And she was so isolated emotionally and very much physically at that point in time that that's how dramatic the loss
1: impacted her. And I would say that there's um, a a better than, you know, a very high majority of the people I interview here who've lost a spouse uh, really talk about it as having to um, become a different person. That loss in particular um really has a a way of demanding that we reform re dash form not reform <laughs> okay um uh you know you can't continue to be the same person your whole landscape has has changed um so that's that's a, even even in situations uh, where where there is support where there is care where there is talk about the loss that person typically is still figuring out who they are now let's go to our next break we'll come back and talk some more and listeners you can go to my website grief..com or the good grief host page there's a link on my host page to my novel an ocean between them and to find kristen meekoff you can go to dot back after the break
3: us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's
1: VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
3: Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. I've been talking with Kristen Mikoff about her book, A Widow's Guide to Healing. And, of course, Kristen, your book is a, a tremendously good starting point on kind of getting some sense of direction in, in grief. I appreciate, too, that it, uh, you don't have a timeline you know, you, you kind of say two to five years of the intensity, but maybe more, you know, (laughs) and that, that's pretty accurate. Although grief is lifelong. I, I don't, I don't sit in grief very often. The, the hard parts of grief, I sit in gratitude a whole bunch and awareness of loss, but um so if people start with your book, they will read about other things they might do to help themselves. Um, can we talk some about what helped you the most? Because I'm you sure. didn't have your book.
2: <laughs> right. Was, um, actually, I did a lot of reading everything about, I read about grief and loss and major medical journals about broken heart syndrome, articles. Know like People Magazine or other books, and it didn't have to be necessarily the loss of a spouse or partner. I was very curious about how people coped and were able to move on in a meaningful and thoughtful way. And I remember very early on when I started doing research for my book, as I said earlier, I interviewed as many women as I could, and I remember talking to one woman over the phone And she told a story about how she lost her husband to to Alzheimer's. And I just let her, you know, share her story. And at the end, there was a long pause. And for a moment, I thought maybe for a second, she had disconnected the call or something had happened to our connection. And she said to me, this woman, by the way, was in therapy, Um, she said, you're the first person person that let me share my story without interrupting me
1: Mm -hmm. And,
2: and I always remember that because there's so much power in being able to share your story with someone and if you're wondering how to best support someone who has lost their loved one, one of the things that you can do is often excuse me, offer to listen to the brief story and do so without judgments or, you know, interrupting them or all types of questions, letting them share that is a very powerful way to help them to heal. And if you don't have someone to share your story to, whether it's a therapist or a support group, writing, and we know expressive writing, there's lots of research in the power in a positive way that it can help us. I would encourage you to share your story in an expressive writing way or even recording it or just sharing it, you know, aloud because it's, I feel one of the best ways to begin to heal.
1: I I so agree. And I think you're referring a bit to the fact that not everybody in our profession knows how to deal with grief. Um, I think it's especially important not to try to fix anything when people are grieving until they want to fix it. Right. Uh, So that listening capacity, that isn't always what therapists lead with. They want to improve something uh, I find. So that's a really good message for the therapy for profession. Sometimes people don't have any other access to being fully heard other than us. Um, and I've found that very, very powerful uh, in general.
2: Right. What are some mean, of the why, other? oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's why support groups are so powerful because it allows, whether it's a support group for AA or NA or Al-Anon for children or adult children, Because it allows the person to share their story without judgment. And there's so much support that you feel at that visceral level, as you were talking about, when you're able to share your story with someone else and feel that it's accepted and that you're accepted for wherever you are in your life. And that's why I really encourage um, parents to help their children to share their story wherever they are and to... Mm -hmm. Is, is you were saying, those in the mental health profession, to encourage their clients, patients, however you may refer to them, to share their story as well.
1: Yeah, just in general, feeling heard is, a, is a, a very important human need, wouldn't you say? And then if there's something huge, it's even more important. I've heard that. I had a guest who wrote a book called Holding Space, Uh she didn't invent the expression, but that's basically what it is, just being there for a person and listening. Very powerful. Right.
2: It's the yeah, it's I think it was Carl Rogers who said something about unconditional positive regard. I'm going way, way back, but that's really what you want. (laughs) You want to feel valued, you want to feel appreciated. And that's one of the ways in which we as humans can do that for another person is to listen.
1: I guess there's an an added piece with grief, which is that most grievers are are encountering a lot of people who are afraid of them, afraid of their loss, afraid of the big feelings um, reacting to them. So having someone who's just there is such a relief. I mean I think I still too, I still remember the people who had that capacity in in my early grief.
2: Right. And just to be fair, I think sometimes too that those around you it's not necessarily that they don't want to hear your story, but they're afraid they're gonna say the wrong thing. And Absolutely. they don't want to do any more damage emotionally because they see that you're fragile and you know, we don't, as humans, receive any type of professional training unless you actually gone into the field about what to do when you see your loved one is suffering. And suffering can be best, I think, handled when someone sees another person through the lens of compassion and doing that and giving them, as you said, space or making it a point to acknowledge the loss and saying things like, you know, I don't know what it's like to lose my father, if if their father's still living, but I can imagine this is one of the toughest times of the year for you. And that simple text or message, whether it's an email or in person, can mean the world to someone who's grieving. Do
1: you recall the most meaningful thing that, that anyone said to you at that time? I think um, what
2: the person who helped me the most at the time, actually she helped with my husband's funeral, and she had lost her child to cancer when he was very young. I believe he was eight at the time. She said to me, you know, death does do damage, and it's like an amputation, and you don't just grow another limb back after somebody has died. And that really put it in a visual way as well as a very clear way that there is suffering that happens. And as you said, you know, when you go back to work or you enter into another social circle, even when you see your family, they want you to act sometimes as if it hasn't happened. And it has happened. And not to get down on yourself, because you're experiencing heartache and you're experiencing a panic attack or you're experiencing feelings of anger, that these are very normal feelings and they, you are still okay to have them. And there are lots of people who may not be there to support you, but there's, you just need the one person who is going to give you that unconditional love and appreciation.
1: You know, one thing I notice about my kids is that when people in their communities experience losses, they're often or usually the first one called because, you know, they, they survived for one thing, but also they're not going to try to make it better right away. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And I do think that's favored. I'm not surprised that it was someone who had had deep loss who was able to communicate that um, it was going to hurt and that's okay. Um, That was the voice of experience, which also is helpful, isn't it?
2: Yes. And I think children, the really beautiful thing about children is children tend to live life on life's terms. And it's us adults who sometimes can be uncomfortable with that and have you know wishful thinking or, or try to avoid a painful, difficult conversation. But children see things in a very simple yet accurate way. And I think it's helpful in their healing process to reassure them that it's okay to talk about their fears or what is making them anxious or maybe making them angry.
1: I want to say a word about age since I had two kids in in such different age groups when I I, uh, lost my wife that um, there was a lifelong impact on the way they processed grief. It was much less verbal for the one who'd been two and a half at the time much more verbal for the 14-year-old. I can't extrapolate a whole principle, right? I can't prove it. But it did occur to me that, of course, that would make sense because the two-and-a-half-year-old was a less verbal person, you know, and it was quite far into her 20s before she got fluent talking about loss, Um, whereas the older one was, was quite good at it so there's all of that layer too of development and how it's going to show itself at different times in a person's life and then how you how you take the next step with that I'm sure if you're like most people the loss of your husband probably brought up those other losses and then you grapple with them again in some way I imagine
2: absolutely and I think that we as Americans during the past two years when we've seen others lose their loved ones, or perhaps they were close to losing their loved ones. It brings up our own losses as well. And it's very natural to feel sad when we know someone is either anticipating a loss or there might have been a sudden loss. And I think it's very important to understand that that's part of our humanity is to know that we're made up of all kinds of emotions. And being able to talk about grief and loss is something that is helpful, not hurtful to the people who are bereaved.
1: Absolutely agree. And that's a good place to, to stop for today. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Kristen, and I hope people will go look for the book, especially those people who, who've lost a spouse, you know, who would just like someone to say, okay, now try to do do this it's one step at a time so thank you for being here thank you cheryl i
2: appreciate your time
1: absolutely you can find kristen meekoff at kristenmeekoff.com. next week i'll have suzanne falter back on the show to talk about her new memoir free spirit how my daughter healed me from the afterlife this has been good grief with cheryl jones i look forward to being with you again next week